The first reading is from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things since my youth. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father 
or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Apparently, despite a million memes to the contrary, Mahatma Gandhi didn't actually say, the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. But it doesn't have to be a quote from Gandhi to still be a valid point. And I do find myself worrying that the current trajectory of British society is towards the promotion of self-advancement and self-improvement at the expense of those whose capacity to achieve is more restricted. So you will remember, I'm sure, the rhetoric around recent elections where people in so-called hard-working families were lauded whilst those who were deemed benefits scroungers were vilified. And the changes to the benefits system in recent years has left many vulnerable people without access to support. A recent National Audit Office survey found that at least 69 suicides could be linked to problems with benefit claims over the last six years. So Dr. Chris Allen, a consultant clinical psychologist with the Berkshire NHS Foundation Trust, wrote recently that when worth is increasingly defined by the ability to be economically productive and mental health issues are discounted as a reason to not be in the workforce, the underlying message is that you are a burden and that you don't belong. He continues, a compassionate society would care for people experiencing difficulty, recognize that contributions can be made outside work and facilitate this, rather than communicate a sense that if you cannot work, you may as well be on the scrap heap or even not here at all. To take this train of thought a bit further, in our society, even caring for the victim or siding with the weak is sometimes viewed as being a somehow suspect endeavor. Indeed, a headline from the Daily Mail a few years ago suggested that nobody likes a do-gooder and that selfless behavior is alienating. The, I note, unnamed Daily Mail reporter explained, they probably think their selfless behavior makes them popular, but the truth about do-gooders is nobody really likes them. Far better, clearly, at least in the Daily Mail's eyes, to get on and get ahead whilst those who fall behind, as Johnny Depp says in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, get left behind. Well, in our first reading this morning from Mark's Gospel, we met the disciples having an argument about which one of them was the greatest. And in response to their quarrel, Jesus offered them one of the most powerful and challenging re-envisionings of human power dynamics that has ever been uttered. Verse 35 of chapter 9. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. 
And this week, as we begin that period of the Christian calendar known as Lent, when people traditionally focus on self-denial as a preparation for the journey towards the cross, the invitation here is for us to join with the early disciples in rethinking the basis of our self-worth and reconsidering where we will place our priorities. The disciples in Mark's gospel, quarreling about who was the greatest, were stuck in a mindset of personal and individual advancement with delusions of grandeur and achievement dominating their self-worth. I'm a huge fan of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, and the lyrics of one of the songs brilliantly captures something of this hubris on the part of the disciples. They sing, always hoped that I'd be an apostle, knew that I could make it if I tried. Then when we retire, we can write the gospels so they'll still talk about us when we've died. This culture of personal advancement and spiritual achievement that we see in the disciples walking the path with Jesus is still something which haunts disciples of Jesus in our own time. Many of us have been nurtured in our faith in contexts that emphasized the following of Jesus as a personal decision which each of us must make for ourselves. And whilst I don't fundamentally disagree with this, there is always an element of personal choice involved. It can all too quickly take us into an individualized understanding of the gospel where the good news is good news for me and where what matters most is my personal relationship with Jesus. And many of the songs we sing speak of Jesus and God in highly personalized language. My Jesus, my Savior, the wonderful hymn by Darlene Jesh. Be thou my vision, O Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder. And whilst I like and would choose all of these songs, we need to be alert to the temptation of falling into an individualized gospel because the temptation to pride is always before us. You see, it's only a short step from knowing that I am special to God to thinking that I'm somehow more special than others or possibly, and even more insidiously, more worthy of God's love than some others. There's a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters where the senior demon Screwtape is uh, writing to his nephew Wormwood, offering his junior demon advice on how to tempt his first subject. If you don't know the book, I heartily recommend it. Screwtape says, your patient has become humble. Have you drawn their attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once a person is aware that they have them, but this is especially true of humility. Catch your patient at the moment where they are really poor in spirit and smuggle into their minds the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at their own humility, will appear. If they awake to this danger and then try to smother their new form of pride, make them proud of this attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. Just don't try it for too long, for fear you awake their sense of humour and proportion, in which case they'll merely laugh at you and go to bed. So... What the disciples, arguing about who was the greatest, needed to learn from Jesus was that he had called them 
to be part of a very different kind of community, where greatness and humility were measured in substantively different ways. And Jesus teaches them this through a kind of enacted parable involving a small child. It's a highly dramatized scene as Jesus draws a little child into the center of the group. I've mentioned before as we've been going through Mark's gospel this year that it's always worth paying attention in Mark to the geographical clues that he gives us about where events take place. And he tells us here that the setting is in the midst of a group of people in a house in the town of Capernaum. This isn't happening out on some isolated hillside somewhere. It's taking place right at the center of community and family life. And the thing is, normally, a child would have been excluded from such a setting. Children and other powerless members of society would never have been welcomed into the center of a social circle in a house in a town. They would have been kept outside, unseen and unheard. In fact, there's a side to this that is even more sinister. The normal pretext for drawing a powerless person into the middle of the social circle would have been as a precursor to stoning them. Let's never forget that the scapegoating of the vulnerable is not something we only find in the eye of the Daily Mail and its ilk. But Jesus subverts all of these power structures by drawing a small, weak, powerless child into the center of the circle of power. And he takes the child in his arms and embraces the child with love and welcome and inclusion and acceptance. It's a powerful picture of the most powerful person in the place, the rabbi at the center of the community, honoring the least powerful and least deserving, a small child. As object lessons go, this one packs a punch, particularly given that it is Jesus' answer to the argument about which of the disciples is the greatest. Jesus says to them, and by extension to us, that the greatest is the weakest, and that the last shall be first. And I wonder how we can hear this challenge in our world, in our context, in our church. Who has power in this room? And who doesn't? And where do we as a community locate our estimation of value when we think of one another? You see, the community of Jesus' disciples, both then and now, should be a place where the weak and the vulnerable are valued, where the helpless are nurtured, and where personal prowess is secondary to the service of others. This is a topsy-turvy view of power dynamics, where those whom society would normally sideline or scapegoat are brought into the center and honored and valued. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't welcome the child and tell his disciples to do likewise because it's a nice thing to do or to earn approval from God and society, or to make himself and the disciples feel like better people, or to enact some kind of first century equivalent of politicians kissing babies on the campaign trail, or to set up a community of do-gooders who make the rest of the world feel guilty and resentful. 
Although I have to note Christians have a pretty poor track record of doing all these things with enthusiasm. But rather, the Jesus community, which is you and me in our generation, is instructed to do good to the weak and the powerless because this is the antidote to the envy and jealousy and greed and resentment that keeps some down in the gutter whilst raising others to the stars. In the first century, just as today, so much of societal advancement was built on some achieving greatness whilst others were trampled along the way. And if you look around you today and see a society creaking at the seams with a rising number of vulnerable people falling through the cracks, and if you find yourself thinking there has to be a better way, then the good news is that there is. And it's here in this enacted parable of Jesus bringing a little child into the heart of the community. Jesus invites his followers to create communities where the rich, the powerful, the educated, and the articulate set aside their privilege and their advantage, learning along the way that these do not add to a person's worth before God, and become instead communities where the vulnerable and the excluded are welcomed in and placed in positions of honor as their worth is restored to them in God's name. So many of the structures that exist in society to help the poor and the vulnerable still depersonalize those who they're trying to help. We meet this with some of the people who come in here on a Tuesday evening for our uh, Tuesday evening um, evening center. So people who are sleeping on the streets and they come in and they have a meal and, you know, uh, it's great. But... What they are used to experiencing in so many of the places in society that hand out food or offer services is a depersonalization in the offer. What I like about our Tuesday evening centre, and I think this is one of the areas where we're getting this right, is that we get to know people's names. We build long-term relationships with them. We personalise them. We honour them as individuals. The fact that we can offer some washing of clothes so that people can go out feeling clean is really, really important. And I, I think that, that's a positive example of something this church gets right. But that doesn't mean we can be complacent. I think we need to, to keep this challenge before us of how can we, as the people of God, honour and personalise those whom society dishonours and depersonalises. As the rich man in our second reading discovered, sometimes it would all be so much easier if it was just a matter of keeping the basic commandments. Here we have a guy who seems on the surface to be getting it all right. He's not killing people. He's not cheating on his wife. He's not stealing or lying or defrauding. And he's still doing very nicely too. Thank you very much. This is the kind of guy who, as some might put it today, is hashtag winning at life. I had a few moments on social media looking up what that, uh, that tag draws up. It's quite instructive. But the rich young man knows that something isn't quite right. Something isn't quite ringing true. That despite all his success, all his efforts, all his keeping of the, the law... His life lacks vitality. It's missing the deeper significance that Jesus calls life eternal. 
And Jesus offers him a prescription for what ails him, which is that he needs to let go of all of his money. This is not easy for us to hear in London in 2020, where almost all of us are richer than two-thirds of the world's population. Challenges about money are never easy to hear, and invitations to give money away in substantive quantities are problematic. Thankfully, Jesus knows this. He says that it is hard for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, and that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I've heard people engage in all kinds of exegetical squirming to get out of this. One of the commonly asserted get-outs in the armory of well-heeled preachers is that there was an eye-of-the-needle gate in the wall in Jerusalem, which was narrow and low, and that the only way a camel could get through it would be on its knees, concluding, of course, that the way a rich person can get into the kingdom of God is on their knees in prayer. The only problem with this is that there is absolutely no indication that such a gate ever existed. It's a completely invented story. Others have claimed that camel is a misspelling and that instead of camelos, it should be the similar sounding word camelos, which men, means kind of rope or cable. So, you know, it's like trying to thread, a, thread something that's a bit too big for the eye of the needle. But again, there isn't any textual variation in the manuscripts to support this. So I think we can't use that one either. The problem is there isn't really any way out of the fact that Jesus basically says it is impossible for those who have wealth to find their way into God's kingdom on merit. And speaking as someone with, in global terms, a certain level of wealth, I don't know why any of us are surprised at this. Those of us who do have bank accounts and savings and pensions and houses will know from our own experience that these things can weigh heavy on our souls. The temptations to selfishness, to pride, to greed, to envy, to gluttony, to laziness are all amplified by wealth and by the privilege and power that comes with it. And none of us can resist these things on our own. And for some, the corrosive effect of wealth may indeed mean that the call of Jesus is to give it all away. But I don't actually think that it is responsible exegesis here to take the encounter between Jesus and the rich young man and extrapolate from there to an ideology where all of us should give everything away. Any more than it would be responsible exegesis to suggest that the young man was rich in the first place because God had rewarded him with wealth in return for his diligence in keeping the commandments, as some prosperity gospel preachers have indeed suggested. Rather, the message for each of us to hear, I think, is a challenge about our attitude towards our possessions if we have them. It's a question about the extent to which they influence and determine our sense of self. And a demand that we reject any patterns of worth and value based on money and power and status. Uh, I preached a sermon a couple of years ago on Zacchaeus. And if you want a model of somebody with wealth who finds their path to the kingdom of heaven, I would encourage you to look out that sermon on our sermon archive and have a listen. I think there is a challenge here about how we handle our giving and the attitude with which we give. 
I've said before that giving to God through the people of God is not the same thing as giving to a charity that we want to support. And nor should it be one of the good works that we do to assuage our consciences and to discipline our wallets. Our giving to God should be a sacrificial offering which we surrender to the people of God so that together we can discern what God would have this community do to bring the kingdom of God into being in and through this place. I don't preach tithing as something binding on all Christians. And the arguments some Christians get involved in regarding pre- or post-tax tithing seem to me entirely misplaced. But for what it's worth, over the years, starting with my first paper round, I've found that giving 10% of my disposable income to God through my church has been a good discipline to remind me that I do not truly own that which I have and that I don't want to get into a situation where what I have owns me. For those of us with money, this is a difficult passage and a difficult calling. But it is not impossible, at least for God, as Jesus says, reminding the disciples, for God, all things are possible. I also think it's worth our while paying attention to the language Jesus uses here when he speaks of the kingdom of God, in response to the rich man's question about what he must do to inherit eternal life. Both these terms, kingdom of God and eternal life, can become conflated with the idea of heaven as the place where souls go after death if they have been deemed good enough. Uh, this picture is uh, the, divine, the Ladder of Divine Ascent from St. Catherine's Monastery. And uh, I remember I saw the original of this when we were there a few years ago. And it's the monks trying to get up the ladder to heaven and the demons prodding them off on the way and some of them falling into the flames of hell. Within the cosmology of ancient Judaism, the heavens were literally up there as the place where the birds flew and the clouds gathered. They believed that God lived up there above the sky, seated on a throne with his heavenly hosts around him. And if you could find a tall enough mountain or jump high enough or something, you could theoretically get there yourself. And in the Jewish apocalyptic tradition, they imagined the heavens uh, and described going there in mystical visions to gain otherworldly knowledge. The idea of heaven being where you go when you die is only a very late addition within the Jewish theology of uh, heavens and afterlife. Many Jews at the time of Jesus didn't believe this. Um, you may remember there's that argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Pharisees do believe in an afterlife and the Sadducees don't, uh, and that's why they're sad, you see. Ha ha. You won't forget which one's which now, though, will you? So when Jesus says that it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven... And when the rich man asks what he must do to inherit eternal life, the issue is not about whether he's going to go to heaven or to hell as reward or punishment when he dies. This is all about how people are to live in the present, in the here and now. It's about living a quality of life that has eternal value and through which God's kingdom is manifest and made known. And if we can start to model in our midst the systemic reversal of the world's consensus about where power, prestige, and status lie, 
If we can live into being a community where the value assigned to a life is not based on achievement or wealth or some other metric of greatness, but on the inherent value of each created being, then we are at least part of the way towards the fulfillment of that for which we pray that the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But valuing the weak and the powerless is only part of the story. Raising up others is not enough. We also have to take a long and considered look at our own values, our addictions to money and power and status, our sense of our own self-worth and self-importance. And we too have to learn of ourselves, not just of others, that the value of a life is only measured in terms of God's love. All the other foundations and walls that we might use to define our sense of self are more of a hindrance than a help to our journey into God's love. The reason Jesus welcomed a child into the midst of the disciples is because a child does not need to earn the love of a parent, or at least a child should not have to earn the love of their parent. A baby is loved for who it is and not for what it does. I went to see Dawn's twins uh, a couple of weeks ago. They are just deeply loved, but they are, I mean, they're just babies. They've done nothing to earn that. The move towards conditional love that many of us experience in our lives, let's face it, feeling that we have to earn love rather than it just being ours as a gift. I think that is a move away from God's absolute acceptance and delight in our being. Many of us have forgotten that we are loved for who we are, and we have taken deep into ourselves the destructive lesson that we are what we do, what we have, and what we achieve. And it's not that doing stuff is wrong, or that having stuff is wrong, or that achieving stuff is wrong, but our sense of inherent value and love does not depend on that. We convince ourselves, don't we, that God and others will only respect us or admire us for our possessions or some other metric of greatness. And we confuse this with God's love, which is never conditional. We become, in other words, the rich young man, keeping the commandments to earn God's love and discovering that this has created a successful exterior, but a hollow center. And the challenge to us as we enter this season of Lent and the Lenten discipline of denial of self is, I think, the same as it was to him. Can we give up our addictions to money, power, and status? Can we give away our false estimations of our value? Can we move beyond striving to be good into a place where goodness just flows from us? Not because of the good we endeavor to achieve in the world, but because we have learned to place the weak and the vulnerable at the center of our value system. As Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let us pray. Let us pray for those many communities in our world where economic activity is based on greed where only the wealthy, ambitious, and powerful are respected, where status and position are all important, 
where the poorest and weakest go unseen, and each one feels alone. And we give thanks for communities where the silent have found their voice, where the unseen work of many is affirmed with pride, where those who were treated as nothing have discovered that they matter and they are not alone. For the foolishness of God is wiser than our wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than our strength. Let us pray for those systems which ensure the poorest have no share in land or property, where conditions of work are degrading and divisive, where a few determine the lives of many, and the voice of protest is silent. And we give thanks for communities where the poor pool their resources to support each other, where those with knowledge use it to help others learn, where the interests of the strongest are being challenged by anger and courage and love. For the foolishness of God is wiser than our wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than our strength. Let us pray for the relationship between the earth and its people. In a world where crops are grown not to feed children, but to pay off foreign debt. Where forests that help the earth to breathe are destroyed where fertile land is exhausted and air and water sickened with pollution. And we give thanks for communities where land is more fairly shared, where the forest is both harvested and sustained, where desert has been reclaimed and clean water brings life, where climate change is being challenged and efforts made to rid the world of practices that put greed over sustainable health. For the foolishness of God is wiser than our wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than our strength. And let us pray for ourselves, particularly on this first Sunday of Lent, that we may be like those little children welcomed by Jesus, remembering that in God's kingdom, the last shall be first. That when we give away or give up something during this time, it is not for reasons of pride or personal self-congratulation, but to bring about the kingdom of God. That in relinquishing money, power, status, our intention may be to create communities where God gives the values, not ourselves. And we pray that you, sustaining God, will show us how to do these things, mindful of your love and care for all, whoever they may be. For the foolishness of God is wiser than our wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than our strength. Amen.